It is like a prom reunion and Mardi Gras wrapped up into one, and you can visit all three parties during the day that feels like it never ends. No matter your age, the Derby makes you feel young for the day. And in this age of millennials, where experiences are being valued more highly, the Derby is a bucket list experience not to be missed. Those are Jordy Visser's words describing his perspective on the Kentucky Derby, written in his 2021 annual analysis of the race. Fortunately, it's Derby season again, and so this week, we're going to get Jordy's view of how the race is shaping up, and, just as importantly, how handicapping the Derby helps Jordy and Weiss analyze the financial markets. I'm G3, and please check out important disclosures at the end of the episode and stick around for this one. All right. Well, we are going to have some fun today, Jordy. This is the episode I have been waiting for. We are finally going to do a full show on the run for the roses. The most exciting two minutes in sports. And I really believe that the Kentucky Derby, specifically the 148th running of it on May 7th, just 15 days from now in Churchill Downs for our audience. I would say up front that it is important to note that the Derby is one of the things that we initially bonded over. And a big part of that initial bonding focused in on the discussions that we had about your annual Kentucky Derby paper. I was personally blown away by the depth of analysis that you brought to the table. And I remember thinking to myself, there is more to the story here. And so that paper and the backstory that I subsequently learned about what leads to that paper each and every year really got me hooked on wanting to know more about you and this firm and the rest is history. <laughs> so here we are one year later and we're going to talk about the Derby today and its connection as to how you view markets. But before we get to that, I just want to ask you, how did a guy from North Jersey initially get seduced into this horse race? Because as far as I know, you did not go to the University of Louisville or Vanderbilt. You are not in any way a guy who has deep roots in the South. So what gives? <laughs> well, like with a lot of stories with kids growing up, my father had a huge influence on me getting involved in the Derby. Not directly. He's never been to the Kentucky Derby. I'm not even sure he's been to a, a thoroughbred horse race. But he did love harness racing. And although he was a construction worker, his probably only hobby was uh, buying cheap claiming horses that he thought had value, that he saw something in. So he did go to the racetrack a lot particularly Monticello Raceway in, in the Catskills and the Meadowlands. And I still, on other podcasts I've been on, I've referenced that I can remember when I was probably no more than six or seven, him trying to explain to me how to compute the odds by looking at the wind pool numbers and the amount bet on each horse and figure out how to do it learning what a VIG was for the track and all this other stuff and how the horse, the purses were. So 
that triggered my initial love of the game of problem solving and figuring out how to guess who was going to win, which I liked. Since it wasn't binary and there were a lot of horses, it gave you the opportunity to spend time looking at a program. And that was my first introduction, honestly, into analytics. A racing program is filled, even back then, with analytics. How the horse did last race, what it did the race before, is there any changes, what the workouts were like. You got a lot of analytics in there. And that's why I think it's a great breeding ground for risk-reward decisions because you've got more than two horses. You've got, in some cases, like the Derby 20. You're not trying to figure out who's going to win, as my father taught me. You're trying to figure out where there's value based on the odds that are created. And I liked all of it. And then when I finally got to the point where it was later in life, I realized that the race that I actually loved the most was the Kentucky Derby. I hated going to the racetrack, hated it just because I didn't like the environment. I didn't like anything about it. So I decided one year to go to the Kentucky Derby and I enjoyed it. And in analyzing the race, because there was so much data and just like it was when I was a kid, I realized that the Kentucky Derby is actually the best thing for data analytics because it's the same routine every single year, which means the analytics every year matter and you can use the historical data going back 100 plus years and it's still to some degree relevant. And so how many derbies have you been to now? 15. 15 derbies. Okay. So you are a, a regular basically. If I could go every year, but kids were born, work gets involved, pandemics get involved and things don't happen. Life happens. <laughs> Life happens. This year, it's more related to children and having events and stuff that are going on during that Saturday in May. But most of the time, I would like to be there. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So you're not going this year. Let's talk about your paper, though, which I know you are planning on publishing yet again. When did you start this annual tradition? And what's the process you undertake in crafting it? 2009, we had just come out of the great financial crisis, the worst of it, and the market had started to bottom. And I think people, particularly at the firm, were looking for distractions and things in terms of just the prior year, everyone had kind of sweated through the end of the banking system. And someone heard me on the phone talking about the race the week before and describing each horse and what was going on. And the person sitting near me said, I didn't know you knew so much about horses. And I said, well, the Kentucky Derby is my thing. I go every year. And he asked if I would write something up for him. And so I literally wrote up like a three-page analysis because I have all the data. I do all the work. And as you know, I like to write. So I wrote it up and I gave it to him. And he forwarded it around to people. And I'm not kidding you, the next year, I started getting emails saying, where's the derby piece? <laughs> and so it started from someone overhearing conversation. In terms of the process, honestly, it begins in the summertime with Saratoga. Again, I don't go to any horse races. I've been to the Kentucky Derby. I've been to the Preakness. I've been to the Belmont twice. The Preakness I've been to three times. The Kentucky Derby I've been to 15 times. Aside from that, I don't remember the last time in the last 30 years that I was at a different race course other than Saratoga, which I might go to once every three years or something during the summertime. It's a very classy place. 
It's a really classy place. All racetracks are really classy. Trust me. They're, it's not a place I like to spend a lot of time. But in the process, in the summertime, I start watching the videos. The greatest thing about what's happened with streaming is YouTube provides everything I need. So I don't need to watch the races on TV and I can just watch the horses as it goes through it. So I start paying attention in the summer. Probably once a month, I'll look at what happened in the Champagne Stakes and on Travers Day and follow the two-year-olds. And then the same thing will go on into the the winter months, particularly November and December. And then as the three-year-old campaign starts in early January, I'll just start paying more attention. Maybe once every two weeks, I'll read up on horses. And then as we get into March, I start to watch all of the important prep races, which I will in the end watch seven to 10 times over and over because I'll see something differently and it's easy with the internet. So I spend a good amount of time on that. And then as we get closer and closer, I'm starting to go through and shape where I think the odds should be based on what I see in the horses. And I'll start collecting all the data, which has historically meant something. And then once I have what I call my derby analytics sheet, I'll start finalizing the odds and then the paper will be written the week of the derby. But given the fact that I have some experience as well in writing and then publishing what I write, it's one thing to have an opinion and crunch the data. It's another thing to put yourself out there, especially in something that, in your case, isn't your day job. So do you think that the publishing of the paper every year is kind of an organizing principle of sorts to motivate you to write a paper that has a lot of depth of analysis because you're putting yourself out there. I've never had a problem putting myself out there. I, <laughs> I, I write a lot. I do podcasts. I think yeah. we did one very recently where I said Bitcoin will double between now and the end of the year. So yes, I have did. no problem putting myself <laughs> out there. I think I've, I have a dinner coming up because people are looking for anyone who's positive on the equity market. And since I'm saying it's going to be up before the end of the year, I'm getting invited to dinners right now. So I have no problem putting myself out there. <laughs> in my head, the reason I started doing this, one, because when someone asked me to do it and I have all this quote unquote time I've spent on it, why not put it together? The next year when people wanted it, I just said, okay, it doesn't take me that much time to put it together. The third thing, I remember I picked the winner one year and I got a random email from someone in the California Racing Pension Association, who had read the analysis and was so intrigued with the amount of time and data that I spent on it, had bet the horse, and the horse went off, I think, at 16 to 1 or oh, so. Oh, wow. Good it, payoff. It was a very good payoff that year. And the year before, I had picked Super Saver. I can't remember the horse's name from, I think it's 2000. 11. It's not coming to me right now. But regardless, that conversation kind of triggered me going, oh, this is getting around to more and more people. And part of my goal in this is I write in there that I think the Kentucky Derby is a piece of Americana that everyone should go to. I mean, what else do you have that's been around since the 1800s in this country where you still get 150,000 people to show up? They're all dressed up. It's a fun day. It's all day. I've had some of my favorite times there with people that are very special in my life. So I've literally been doing this, I think, partially because I like to organize my brain for anything. Helps me with markets. It helps me with the horse race. But also it brings a lot of enjoyment to other people. And I'm trying to keep the Kentucky Derby having 150000 every year. So really, Churchill should give me free tickets every year <laughs> because I'm trying to help them out. Well, at least a free hat, right? <laughs> Well, let me ask you, so much like you do with the markets, you look at a lot of analytics, 
to base your conclusions. However, I have come to appreciate that you don't weigh all data equally in markets, regardless of how popular certain data sets are. The ISM, for example, is something that, you know, I know you put a lot of stock in. Is there an equivalent for the Derby, that one data point or ratio that is most important to your mind that may not be most important in the minds of others? Well, this is going to sound silly, but it's a race. And the most important data point without any question is speed. And I say that (laughs) it sounds silly, but the reality is they give you a program and there's a speed rating on it. Now, there's many, many speed ratings. So you've got a buyer speed rating. You've got a brisnet speed rating. I use Thurograph. Everyone has a different approach. Think of them as different algorithms to come up with something to normalize the day at the track, the way the other races. It's a whole big process that goes in, but you do get speed numbers. And I look at all of them, but I've gone back and done most of my work on the Brisnet speed ratings. And it's had a very high likelihood that you have to hit a certain threshold to be able to win in the Derby. And really what that's saying is horses in the past have all hit this level and this is a level you want to be at. So speed is one. The second thing is how you finish the race. It's, you know, horses at this age, they're progressing. So you want to see their progression, but you also want to see how they finish the final prep race. So the one thing they've all done is they've raced in a prep race, which generally is one and an eighth mile. The Kentucky Derby is one and a quarter mile. So they continue to race a little bit longer. And in that final prep race, I'm looking to see how they close. Do they meet the historical numbers? And are they slowing down too much at the end? If they're slowing down at a mile and eighth, it's very likely they're going to be slowing down significantly at a mile and a quarter. So it's speed and endurance is what you're looking for. So Brisnet speed rating, how horses finish, that is essentially your ism. Yeah. If I could only have three numbers, I want the Brisnet speed rating. I want the final three eighths of the last race and the final eighth of that race. If I can only have three data points, that's what I Those want. Them. Okay. And what about the red herring data point? You know, something that a lot of people put emphasis on that you don't care much about. Well, that I don't care much about is names. <laughs> a lot of people bet on names, but let's use something that I weight less than where most people do. It's the recency bias of the last race. People throw out horses because maybe I'll use a horse, an example of a horse last year. The eventual winner after Medina Spirit was disqualified was a horse called Mandaloon. And Mandaloon had a great race, two races before the Derby, then had kind of a a dud in the one before. But in the two races before had a speed rating, which didn't meet the historical criteria And the final three eights and eights in that race were both impressive as well. For whatever reason, and this happens in horse racing, the horse just didn't have a good race in the final prep, ends up winning the Derby, but even if without disqualification, ran much better and looked like the horse that it did too goes. So the takeaway from what you just said is that recency bias is something that some betters, maybe some sophisticated betters, weight a bit too heavily in their decision-making because the last race can often lead to false signals of a horse's strength leading into the derby. It's such a unique race. Yeah. Human beings are trend followers. I mean, we're going through this in the market right now where I've said repeatedly since we started doing these podcasts that I think we're in a permanent higher inflation world than we've had, that it's structurally higher. It's not going to be off the charts. 
but that technology is going to suffer and the multiples on technology stocks are based on a recency bias. There's a lot of people managing money in those spaces that are keeping them up there. I think a recency bias is a normal thing for human beings. They don't like change and they especially don't like abrupt change. And so the easiest thing to do is take the patterns of the most recent and bring them into the future. And that doesn't always work. I mean, Secretariat won the Triple Crown, lost the Wood Memorial. If <laughs> Secretariat's the greatest horse of all time and still, I think, has the track or the record for all three of the Triple Crowns. <laughs> so lost the, the Wood Memorial the time before. So horses, you got to look and then look at the value that's being offered on the board. Let's dive a little deeper into how you view markets thanks to sort of your training in analyzing horse races. The first part of that, I think, requires us to just kind of briefly describe what paramutual betting is, because I think without understanding that, you can't really appreciate your approach. So if you could just kind of give a brief overview of what that is. Well, a paramutual, I believe, means mutual bet. <laughs> so which basically means that the odds are created by the people that are betting on it. So there's a certain amount of dollars that go into a pool Again, as my father taught me, once you take the VIG out, the odds are created based on the amount of money that's been bet. So if you want to go into how to rejigger the percentages and probabilities, just to give you an idea, there's 20 horses in the Kentucky Derby. So if a horse goes off at four to one, that means that you're approximately a 20% chance that the horse is going to win. If a horse goes off at nine to one, you're approximately a 10% chance that it's going to win. It's basically you can just take whatever it is to one, meaning nine to one, five to one, add one to it, and then 100 divided by that number is going to get you the effective probability of the horse winning. The reason that's important is because when everyone is asking for who the winner is going to be, when you have 20 horses in the race, if they were all equal chance of winning, that would mean everyone has a 5% chance. So picking a winner on something that has a 5% chance is a fairly random thing. You're flipping a coin, you got a 50% chance. So in the Kentucky Derby, you never see, or I don't remember the last time we've seen, if we've ever seen a horse that was off at even money. Normally you're somewhere, a heavy favorite is around three to one. A lot of times the favorite will be four and a half or five to one. And that means that in almost any derby based on the wind pool or the, the paramutual betting, you're talking about a horse that only has approximately 16 to 25% chance of winning. Very seldom do you see higher than that based on the way the betting is. So whereas in a casino, a lot of games are based upon the odds set by the house. Here, it's set by the fellow bettors. And so the opportunity, and I think this is where it very much plays into equities, and if you could comment on this, that would be great. It's not about picking the best company or the best horse. It's about finding the value, right? Absolutely about finding the value. So you have to have some idea of where you think the odds should be, and people do that in the markets all the time. I mean, right now, for example, you're seeing almost every economist put their probabilities of a recession within the next two years out there. I have my own model that I use, which is different than economists. It uses asset prices almost exclusively. And right now, my model is about 7 or 8% chance. Most people have as high as, I think Goldman Sachs just went to 35% chance of recession before the end of next year. 
I'm out there probably saying stocks are going to go higher because I don't believe we're going to have a recession this year and people are overly talking about a recession. The great thing about the paramutual betting, which I didn't mention, they're not fixed odds. So you do all this work and then as people bet on that day, the odds change. They continuously change. So a lot of things you're dealing like if you go to bet on a football game and the, the spread is seven to one and you bet on that's the spread you have. If a lot of money comes in after you, you're not getting a different spread. You get that spread. So it's a fixed spread at the racetrack. They just keep changing. And so you might like a horse and the morning line odds might be 10 to one and you want to bet it at 10 to one, but it goes down to four to one because that's where you thought it should be. Maybe you're not going to bet anymore because now it's at fair value. So the whole concept that's beautiful about the racetrack is you do all this work, you come up with an analysis, and then you look where it is. In the stock market, the way that I was trained in the same way was as a derivatives person. If you believe a security stock is trading at $50 and you think in a year it's going to be at $75, well, a lot of people don't do this. But if you go to the option market and look at effectively what the probability is. You can do the same thing as you do with paramutual betting. You can go look at what the market has as the probability of it getting to 75. And so if you think there's a 70% chance of it getting to 75 and the 75 strike calls trading at zero, (laughs) so it's free or one, there's a level that is there. And I don't think a lot of people used implied probability. So I started as a derivatives trader and I think my background of converting wind pools into odds and probabilities that my father taught me had a huge influence on me basically using the Black-Scholes model. I love that analysis and the way in which you look to the options market as a way for valuable clues. As you know, of course, we're both big fans of Annie Duke. Another thing that we bonded over initially, of course, was her book, Thinking in Bets, which uses poker as a canvas to help people to make better decisions in life. Great book. But the more I've learned about the Kentucky Derby and horse racing in general from you, I kind of think that it's an even better way to help train your brain for deciphering markets. How do you compare and contrast poker and horse racing in terms of what it gives you in analyzing markets? Because as you well know, a lot of hedge fund traders and the like really want to get good at poker because they think that gives them an edge in how they play the markets. It's a good question, and I actually, I'm going to give Annie a little plug here because we did speak last week, and she will have a book coming out in, I think she said October, and it's on a topic that I like, which is on quitting. So it's kind of a contrarian view of grit and fighting through things, but sometimes it's good to quit and to move on. And I think when you think about the beauty of what I said in terms of a horse, if you have the odds on it and you think it should be 10 to one, but then by the time you're going to bet it's four to one, are you going to stick with that bet when the odds have changed that much and you now no longer think there's value? That means there's some other horse that must be creating value that's different. That's good. So are you saying that there may very well be a crowded trade in grit? Yes. I think it's a very interesting direction to go. Hopefully she'll come on the podcast after the the book comes out. But being in a derivative side, poker is a really good framework of just option trading. Because in option trading, you're literally just going through the math and trying to see where there's value versus where something is. Some of it will be based on your forecast of where volatility will be. But you're looking for value. And in a poker table, there's incomplete information which means a lot of the information that you need to be good at it is interpreting human beings' tells and trying to figure out what they have because you don't know. The only cards you know are yours. So you know the odds on your hand winning, 
but you just don't know what other people have. So you're trying to interpret based on the way they're betting to figure out whether they have the hands that can beat you or not. So there's a lot of good training in poker for trading and option theory. For the markets, like figuring out what the economy is going to look like, whether the stock market's going to go up or down. The thing that I like the most with horse racing is that when you watch the Kentucky Derby this year, the entire pre-race is narratives. It's all narratives on why you should like the horse, what the horse has done. There's a story. Every year I get asked, who do you like in the Derby this year? And then when I say, they go, why? Now, if I recite all of these analytics, what is it going to matter to them? They have no idea. It doesn't mean anything if I tell them, a, you know, a Mr. Prospector horse has won so many times out of this. It doesn't matter. So the narratives that get associated drive them. And with markets, everyone needs a reason why the market's going higher. So when people ask me now, how can you think the market's going to go higher? I think earnings will be good this year. I think people are really negative right now. And although a recession is increasing in probability, I don't think the Fed is going to push the economy into recession. And I think people are underestimating how much cash was handed out by the government last year due to PPP, not having to pay your mortgage, a student deferment, and also stimulus checks and student wages. Loan, you mean student loan deferment? Yeah. Okay. It, just, so again, it's not to say a recession can't happen, but the odds that are associated with it and the amount of the narratives going through it, I'm looking to poke holes in the narratives. I do the exact same thing with handicapping a horse race. So to end things on uh, the Derby here and specifically how you're thinking about betting, what are those narratives that you're looking to poke holes in? Well, first of all, for everyone out there, this will be the probably the most close betting for the what I call the tier one horses that I can remember. So every year, I break down the Derby into tier one, tier two, tier three, and tier four. So 20 horses, and sometimes tier one has three horses. Sometimes it has four horses. This year, it has five horses. Those five horses are Epicenter, Tabor, Messier, Mo Donegal, and Zandon. So those would be the top five. And I think the spread between those five, I, at this point, have two of them at five to one, two of them at six to one, and one of them at eight to one. That is a very, very closely contested tier one. I don't think any of them are going to move down to three to one. If I had to guess, Taba would be the one. You're going to hear about Taba being a freak, and that's the first thing I want to poke holes in. The horse was awesome in the Santa Anita Derby. What it did is freakish. But and by freakish, when we watched it together, I know you said it was the way the horse pulled away at the very end and showed a huge amount of resilience towards the end of the race, right? It's more the fact that it was only its second race and the first race was a sprint. And so to go from a sprint to a mile and an eighth is something that you generally don't see trainers do. Because the horse was purchased for $1.7 million and the owner wanted to do that, that's why it happened. It has the Baffert story because Baffert won't be training horses at this year's Kentucky Derby because of last year's disqualification. And so Taba is not being trained by Baffert right now, but is a Baffert horse. And so you've got all this stuff and it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of betting money because the horse is probably the best horse in the race. Based on what you saw there, the question is, with that kind of only two races under its belt, only raced against a five-horse field, I believe, and then a six-horse field, now it's going to be in a 20-horse field. It's just not the same type of thing. So it had the ability of just turning it into kind of a match race. 
really with Messier, and I don't think it's going to have that opportunity. Messier has the same problem. The California horses have not been great this year. It raced in small fields, and I think that the other horses which have raced against each other, Epicenter, Modonigal, and Zandon, I think those are going to be better places to have your money. And then just to finish it off, I really do think that Smile Happy is going to offer a lot of value. I also think Morello, which had a bad start in the Wood Memorial, but meets a lot of the historical speed rating numbers, is probably going to go off at 25 to 1. So if Morello goes off at 25 to 1, you're probably going to have a little bit of action on that, right? Yes, yes. And Smile Happy, because I I think those right off the bat are mispriced relative to the kinds of horses they are and where they were two races ago. And in the case of Smile Happy, again, he just lost to Zandon. And if you switch it around and Smile Happy wins, Smile Happy is close to the favorite. And so So in watching you watch the Louisiana Derby, you seem to be very confident upon seeing how that race played out, that epicenter was going to win no problem. Epicenter finished incredibly strong. So if for whatever reason the odds on Epicenter get higher, I would imagine you would put some money there too. Yeah, Epicenter has proven to be able to get out of the gate well, has put in a lot of good races. The speed ratings have been great. It's actually an understatement to say that the horse closed well. A mile and three sixteenths is the same distance as the Preakness. And I believe Epicenter ran the last... Three sixteenths in that race at 18.2 or 18.25 seconds. So meaning on average about 6.1 per furlong. I can't find a Preakness winner that did that. If it occurred, I can't find it. Most of the time in the Preakness, the numbers have been 18 and a half to 19 and change. So you're talking about a horse that ran a mile and three sixteenths, has done it from the lead, has done it sitting off the pace as it did in the last race where it rated and looks great. I think the only thing about it is it's probably going to go off as the favorite, if not Taba will. If it wasn't for Taba, maybe Epicenter goes off at a bigger favorite. But if I had to guess, I would guess Epicenter will not be overbet. It'll be underbet. And the reason I say that is because I think Zandon seems to be the horse that everyone likes a lot. And it raced against Epicenter. Epicenter beat Zandon, but it was Zandon's first start of this year. Chad Brown's training Zandon, and I think most people. So they like that as the, you know, pun intended, dark horse. Yeah, there's a narrative around Zandon that I think people are shooting against Epicenter, and Epicenter has done nothing wrong in this entire campaign, right, so right. it might be under bet. All right, so last question. When is your paper going to come out? It's probably the second most asked question about my derby paper, <laughs> and I always say the same thing. It will come out after the derby draw which I believe is on Wednesday this year. If not, it's on Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, but before the Derby. So, And that's because you want to see the positions on the post. Post position matters for the race, not because a given post position necessarily is good or bad. The one hole has historically in, in most recent years been horrible for horses, but if you're a speed horse, it's not going to be as bad because you'll get out. But you're kind of real close to the rail with 20 horses, so... It's proven to be bad. If you have no speed, it's less important on where you are. But if you have the ability of getting out, you want to kind of be out on the outside so you can get into good position quickly and kind of race in front of the horses. So I like to see where they are and then match them up with the type of horse that's coming out of the gate. So maybe a day after that? It'll be out Thursday or Friday, yes. Would you give it to me Wednesday? (laughs) 
It doesn't give me any edge on anything. So, all right. Well, uh, you <laughs> remember, paramutual odds, they keep changing all uh, the way that's through. That's true. Can't blame me for asking, though. All right. Very exciting. Thank you so much for this. And we'll make sure to do a recap after the race. Excellent. Thanks, right. G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.